Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, In Unity Lies Strength, Kwame Krumah. You never know when you're going to find people taking a serious interest in the history of philosophy. Opening up a book by Kwame Nkrumah, first leader of independent Ghana, you might expect to find him expounding his political principles, putting forth ideas about the best way to organize society, or complaining about his many opponents. In general, that's exactly what you will find in his writings. But one of his books, published in 1964 and entitled Consciencism, Philosophy and Ideology for Decolonization, begins with a quick dash through the history of European thought. It is most definitely not a history of philosophy without any gaps. The whole thing takes less than 24 pages and manages to get from the pre-Socratics to the 20th century by way of Plato, late ancient Platonism, Descartes, and, here's a welcome surprise, Nkrumah's fellow Ghanaian, the 18th century philosopher of mind, Anton Wilhelm Amo, whom we covered in episode 30 of this podcast series. The point of this is to establish a context for Nkrumah's own philosophy, which he gives the rather unwieldy title of Consciencism. This will be a philosophy that understands itself as reflecting on and growing out of social or material conditions. Nkrumah thinks it is a weakness of modern Western philosophy that it tends to affect an aristocratic professional unconcern over the social realities of the day. Its practitioners, he complains, say that they are not interested in what made a philosopher say the things he says, but only in the reasons which he gives. Philosophy is thus effectively emasculated, and it loses its arresting power. How different were earlier philosophies which had living roots in human life and human society. Pre-Socratic monism, for example, which made all things derive from a single material substance like water or air, was a subtle protest against the political fragmentation of Ionia, the region along the coast of modern-day Turkey, where these very early philosophers lived. Another pre-Socratic, Anaxagoras, put forward the idea that all bodies are mixed with all other bodies as an image of democratic egalitarianism, a political ideology that was then opposed by Plato and his heirs in later antiquity. This reading of classical philosophy may or may not give us insight into the pre-Socratics, but it certainly tells us something about Nkrumah. His signature idea was the need to seek political unity and avoid what he often called balkanization, a word he applies to the situation in ancient Ionia. As the president of Ghana, he struggled against what he saw as factionalism within his own country. He also looked to a wider unity, which would bind together the whole continent of Africa as a single political entity. Nkrumah was, in other words, a pan-Africanist and one who was in a position to do something about it. He took inspiration from the ideas of that most influential of Pan-Africanists, Marcus Garvey, writing in 1951 that, there never was a better period for the Back to Africa movement of Marcus Garvey than today. He had even attended Garveyite meetings during a stay in the US in the 1930s before starting a PhD in the United Kingdom. His advisor was going to be the famous philosopher A.J. Ayer, but the combined pressure of financial problems and his political goals instead took him back to what was then still known as the Gold Coast, where he was born in 1909. He became an activist, a political prisoner, and ultimately the leader of the independence movement that succeeded in transforming the Gold Coast into the new nation of Ghana. 
The advent of Ghana's independence in March 1957 marked the first instance of a sub-Saharan African nation gaining independence from the European powers. Nkrumah would serve as Ghana's prime minister and then president until he was deposed by a military coup while he was abroad in Vietnam at the invitation of Ho Chi Minh in early 1966. Assessment of Nkrumah as a politician are mixed. For many observers, he was an autocrat who ran a one-party state and whose socialist policies failed to bring economic prosperity to his young country. Some critics have even doubted the sincerity of his pan-Africanism, seeing in this only a ploy to gain more power and claiming that Nkrumah would accept African unity only if it was under himself. A more balanced assessment would point to the fact that Ghana saw a relatively healthy increase in GDP of 5%, from 1955 to 1962, with Nkrumah overseeing massive investments in infrastructure and industrialization. He did indeed seek relentlessly to centralize power against the wishes of some traditionally powerful groups in Ghana, especially the Ashanti, whom he blamed for trying to assassinate him in 1955. His political fate was arguably sealed when the international price of cocoa, Ghana's main export, fell sharply in the 1960s. On a relatively favorable telling, Nkrumah's failure was that he had not managed to diversify the economy and also that he had bad timing. Still plowing money into building projects without any trade profits to pay for it, Nkrumah was hit at his weakest when his program had not yet borne the fruits which would have justified its cost and when its cost was at its highest. Of course, our job here is to evaluate Nkrumah as a political thinker, not as a political leader, but the two are not so easy to pry apart given that much of his writing sought to justify his style of rule. He made no bones about preferring a one-party system, the party in question being his Convention People's Party, or CPP. This party was supposed to be one of national unity, which represented all Ghanaians, meaning that there was no real need for rivals. CPP slogans pronounced that the party is the state and the state is the party, and that the CPP is Ghana. Nkrumah did not entirely reject the legitimacy of political disagreement. He insisted that he would have welcomed constructive criticism if it had come from an opposition that had the welfare of the whole nation in view. Unfortunately, politicians don't get to pick their opponents, and Nkrumah was greatly disappointed in the ones he was given. To hear Nkrumah tell it, his opponents simply tried to obstruct the good work of the government. For him, democratic government meant simply that the will of the majority should prevail. He dismissed the idea that the concerns of the minority should be privileged, observing that this was exactly the principle behind apartheid in South Africa. While this might sound self-serving, it was not unprincipled. His insistence on centralization and national unity grew naturally out of his pan-Africanist philosophy. Like Garvey before him, Nkrumah believed that African identity trumped all other differences. That allusion to apartheid comes in a book with the self-explanatory title, Africa must unite. Here and in other contexts, he stressed the gains in security, prosperity, and diplomatic influence that could be achieved if all of Africa were to enter into a political union. There could be a shared military, coordinated foreign policy, and free trade and movement across the continent. He compared the prospective alliance to the United States and the Soviet Union and looked to the emergence of the European common market as a newer model for Africans to imitate. This would mean overcoming differences of religion, language, and ethnicity. Just as he demanded that the various ethnic groups within Ghana should get with the program and build a more powerful nation, 
He wanted Christianity and Islam in Africa to fit themselves with the values of traditional African society. Nkrumah wanted the whole continent, including the majority Muslim nations of North Africa, to form a single polity. He was also eager to welcome home diasporic Africans. For him, all peoples of African descent, whether in the Americas, Caribbean, or anywhere else, count as Africans and belong to the African nation. This is what Nkrumah means with the word we when he says things like, we are Africans first and last, and as Africans, our best interests can only be served by uniting within an African community. He put his own country where his mouth was. It was written into Ghana's constitution that it would cede independence for the sake of a united Africa, and Nkrumah made African unity one of the stated goals of Ghana's foreign policy, along with independence for other African countries, and non-alignment, in other words, a refusal to pick one or the other side in the Cold War. The rationale behind that policy was that small countries could only ever be pawns in the contest being played by America and the Soviets, unless they banded together to look after their own interests. Nkrumah wrote, I can see no security for African states unless African leaders, like ourselves, have realized beyond all doubt that salvation for Africa lies in unity. For in unity lies strength. And as I see it, African states must unite or sell themselves out to imperialist and colonialist exploiters for a mess of pottage or disintegrate individually. This brings us to Nkrumah's trenchant critique of colonialism, or rather, neo-colonialism, a term used in the title of another of his books, Neo-Colonialism, The Last Stage of Imperialism. Following a Marxist analysis we've seen in earlier socialist authors, Nkrumah argues that colonialism has always been an expression of capitalism. European powers used African countries as markets for their products and as places to invest excess capital on the most favorable of terms. The profits go to the foreign capitalist rather than the Africans who do the actual work. Nkrumah gives the example that over a time period when Ghana and Nigeria tripled their production of cocoa beans, their national earnings from this industry actually fell. In the original form of colonialism, these extractive policies were applied through direct rule. In a way, says Nkrumah, this was preferable because with this arrangement, the colonial power at least had to justify what it was doing, if only to its own domestic population. Under neo-colonialism, the same economic exploitation continues without formal political rule, but the hidden motive and end result are the same. Both forms of colonialism are an attempt to export the social conflicts of the capitalist countries to the colonized nations. It works like a charm, as anyone can see from the widening gap between rich and poor countries. This can be understood as a transposition of the class conflict of traditional Marxism to the larger setting of international politics. Instead of the British proletariat being exploited by other British people, who own the means of production, now whole colonized populations in Africa were being exploited by rich colonial powers like Britain. Nkrumah does concede that there is a relatively small bourgeoisie in Africa itself, a middle class that seeks to protect property rights within the continent. In so doing, these people are doing no good for their fellow Africans, simply looking after the interests of foreign neo-colonizers. For the most part, though, Nkrumah tends to see all Africans as one big proletariat. It's a perspective that serves his goal of unity, Tribe, religion, and even race are irrelevant since workers are workers. Anti-colonialism and socialism thus become a single ideology, as typified in the closing line of his book Towards Colonial Freedom, 
With its obvious echo of a famous exhortation from Marx's Communist Manifesto, people of the colonies unite. The working men of all countries are behind you. Despite Nkrumah's obvious commitment to a Marxist vision of the world, his policies as president of Ghana showed a more flexible and pragmatic man at work. He did think economic growth would mostly be achieved in the approved socialist fashion, with the government paying for infrastructure, new factories, and so on. Yet he allowed and even sought out foreign private investment. For instance, a project to build a hydroelectric dam on the Volta River involved American sponsors. While campaigning for this initiative, Nkrumah even visited the United States at the invitation of President Eisenhower in 1958. This wasn't as hypocritical as it might look. Nkrumah justified foreign investment on the grounds that the investors were partnered with the Ghanaian government, and thus working to benefit the people and not exploit them. Besides, the time was not yet right for creating a socialist paradise in West Africa. According to Marxist thought, the communist state can emerge only after a process of industrialization, creating a productive economy whose fruits can then be harvested by all. During his time in office, Nkrumah saw Ghana as still being in that initial phase of industrialization, and he acted accordingly. Nkrumah's explicit dependence on the European socialist tradition may seem an awkward fit with his commitment to pan-Africanism. Consider his self-styled philosophy of consciencism, which, by the way, was developed in concert with William Abraham, who may have contributed more than a little to the book of that title. There we read that consciencism is a materialist philosophy which is content to register the unfolding of matter at the conceptual level. This is, to put it mildly, strongly reminiscent of Marxist theory. How does such deployment of European ideas fit with Nkrumah's stress on a distinctively African identity on developing what he famously called the African personality? To answer this question, we need to join with Nkrumah in looking back into African history, asking how societies organized themselves before the time of colonialism and imperialism. Actually, we already know the answer, thanks to a much earlier episode from this podcast series. According to a widespread interpretation, one championed by Nkrumah, traditional African society was communalistic. This means that decisions were made through consensus among a whole group, like a village, with individual members of the group looking to the benefit of the village and not their own individual concerns. As Nkrumah puts it, the welfare of the people was supreme. Thus, he adds, if one seeks the social-political ancestor of socialism, one must go to communalism. Because he sees this older African way of life as being so close to socialism, he favors it above other imported cultural elements of African societies. As we said earlier, he wants Christianity and Islam to unify with distinctively and traditionally African attitudes. But this is not supposed to be some kind of equal three-way compromise. Rather, these two originally non-African religions should adapt to become more like the African viewpoint. In fact, Nkrumah is openly critical of Christianity observing that its doctrine of original sin stands for a degradation of man that was refreshingly absent in pre-colonial African thought. Again, that older African worldview reminds him of socialism, since it treated all humans as having inward dignity, integrity, and value. Nkrumah blamed imperialism for shattering the long-standing communalist practices of Africa. Balkanization and factionalism among Africans prevented effective resistance to colonialism and neocolonialism, since small social entities and states are weak. For this very reason, colonizers old and new 
have always worked to split up Africans, playing them off against each other. The tribalism Nkrumah perceived within Ghana dismayed him, not merely because it was politically inconvenient for him, but more than that because he saw it as a legacy of colonialism. If Africa were to unite, it could defy such foreign influence, and the best way to forge unity was to return to the values that prevailed in the African continent before colonialism began, values that may be discovered through the study of African tradition. Nkrumah has thus brought us right back to themes we explored much earlier in this series, when we talked about philosophy as it can be found within oral cultures. The study of this topic came to be called, as you will recall, ethno-philosophy. Indeed, Nkrumah's agenda of African unity is symbiotically connected to that tendency in the literature on African philosophy. His pan-Africanism sought its ultimate justification in claims about general features of traditional African societies. He had no interest in the contrary idea that those societies had philosophies that were fundamentally and deeply diverse. And there's a nice final twist here. When we covered the study of philosophy in pre-colonial Africa, we said that this term, ethno-philosophy, first gained prominence thanks to the philosopher Paulin Huntunji, who attacked the whole research program as ethnological work with philosophical pretensions. You can just imagine Huntunji's surprise when he noticed that the word had been used earlier by none other than Kwame Nkrumah. As Huntunji read in Nkrumah's 1957 autobiography, he began but did not finish a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania in the 40s. This was before he went to England and worked briefly with Ayer, as we mentioned earlier. Nkrumah described his planned thesis as a contribution to ethno-philosophy, meaning by this word more or less what Huntunji would later mean by it. Already at this early stage in his life, Nkrumah liked the idea that anthropology could discover the basic and fundamental meanings underlying all cultures. His manuscript of several hundred pages looked extensively at the culture of the Akan, exploring the conception of humankind among this people, their views on the nature of God, and so on. And Nkrumah's interest in ethno-philosophy stayed with him, as we can see from his later emphasis on communalism and a clear, though implicit, allusion in his book Conscientism to Placide Temples's writing about Bantu philosophy. For Huntunji, Nkrumah's uncompleted thesis suffered from the same flaws as other ethno-philosophical studies. It was aimed at a Western audience, rather than being an internal exploration of African thought for Africans. Maybe so, but the fact that he wrote it means that Nkrumah binds together, as few other thinkers have, the themes that have followed us throughout our investigation of Africana philosophy. Then again, perhaps we should hold off on crowning anyone as the figure who best ties our story together, because we're about to get to Franz Fanon. His career spans the geographic range we've been covering in these podcasts, as he grew up in the Caribbean, specifically Martinique, wrote his first book in Europe, specifically France, and became an anti-colonial revolutionary in Africa, specifically Algeria. He also served as ambassador to Ghana for the FLN, the Algerian party fighting for independence, and this was during the time that Nkrumah led the country. Finally, Fanon not only died in the United States, but proved to be a major influence on the thought of the Black Power movement that emerged there in the latter half of the 1960s. So, fans of Fanon, since the summer is here, turn the fan on and keep cool while you wait for the next episode of The History of Africana Philosophy. <music>